Thank you, Ann, for that ministry music. I always rejoice at how in God's providential leading direction, the Word of God is prepared by the ministry and music. This morning, we are indeed focusing on the fact that there is nothing greater than grace. There is no sin that is greater than grace. I wonder, can God forgive, would God forgive, does God forgive a believer who commits adultery? Would God forgive? Can God forgive? Does God forgive a believer who would commit murder? Do you think that's beyond the scope, beyond the pale? Do you think that it's even within the realm of the possible that a person who is truly a child of God could actually get to the place where they would commit murder? This morning, we're looking at a psalm that is written out of an experience in the life of David. David is king. Over Israel. David committed adultery with a woman that he had seen taking a bath, a beautiful woman. And he sent for her and had adultery with her. And then her husband was out fighting a war that David should have been leading, but wasn't. He had the husband come back, hoping to cover his tracks, but it didn't work. And as a result, David arranged for the death of Uriah. He, in fact, had Uriah killed. David was a murderer. And David's life was a mess. The contriteness, the heaviness, the sense of guilt... In David's life is depicted in Psalm 32. He said, Day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned to the draught of summer, Selah. He said, While I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. David was in misery until he came to a place where he sought and found God's forgiveness. This morning we are taking communion. And as we do, I want to focus on the forgiveness that is available to us through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 51 is a psalm, as I said, written out of that experience in David's life. If you notice the title of the song, it says, For the choir director of Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Nathan confronted David about his sin. And David confessed and repented of that sin. This morning, I'm going to focus on confession. Next Sunday, I'm going to finish the psalm and look at what it has to say about repentance. But this morning, basically, we are focusing on the doctrine of confession. This morning, the theme is we're going to consider the forgiveness that one receives when one is already a child of God. There are four basic questions I want to answer from this text. 
excuse me, first, is on what basis can I appeal to God to forgive me? Secondly, what is forgiveness? What should we expect God to do? Third, what condition or conditions must I meet in order to be forgiven? And then lastly, how can forgiveness be mine? So the first question, on what basis should I appeal to God to forgive me? Answer, I appeal to God's grace. Notice with me Psalm 51. A Psalm of David, verse 1. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he got into Bathsheba, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out by transgression. David appeals to the grace of God. King James translates it, mercy of God. For there are three uh, descriptions of God in this one verse that give us a, a full-orbed sense of God's grace. God is gracious. God has a loving kindness, verse 1, and a compassion. A compassion. Like a mother's love for a child. At the very heart of the word grace is the idea of unmerited favor. When David seeks God's forgiveness, he's appealing to God's grace. Not just God's justice. David does not view himself as deserving forgiveness from God. He says, be gracious to me. David, in many ways, was a person of great merit. David had suffered much and done much for God. As a lad, as a young boy, David had been extremely faithful to God, been obedient to his parents, had been trustworthy in the care of the animals that were entrusted to him as a shepherd, proven himself courageous and bold, and a doer of that which was right. One of the greatest Bible stories in all of the scripture is the story of David and Goliath. How David, as a youth, trusted in God and was not afraid of this huge giant that came out against the Israeli army, but was willing to take him on with nothing but a slingshot and a few stones. And of course, he conquered Goliath. He endured the threats of Saul. He fought against the desire to take Saul's life when Saul was persecuting David, chasing David all over the countryside because God had established David to one day be king. But he did not take vengeance upon Saul. He did not have Saul killed. David is expressly referred to as a man after God's own heart. David was one who wanted to establish temple worship. He wanted to build a temple for God. Something that this earth had never seen. David was consumed with worship. In fact, the psalm that we are looking at today was written as a matter of worship. 
for the people of Israel to worship God. David had a great deal of experience with God. But David does not refer to, reflect on, or bring up any one of those things that I just mentioned. The psalm here is absolutely devoid of David at all pointing to any goodness within him. In fact, it's filled with the opposite. David recognizing his unworthiness of being forgiven. The first thing we need to realize about forgiveness is that it is always, always, always undeserved. Forgiveness is not a reward of our faithfulness or our committedness or our good deeds. It is always motivated by grace. The second thing that I think is extremely helpful here is noting that David did not view himself as being beyond the hope of obtaining forgiveness. Psalm 51, verse 1, and you may have it in your title. As I had mentioned, this psalm was written after he'd gone into Bathsheba, after he'd had her husband Uriah murdered. There is a balance that we must maintain in our Christian life. The first is we must guard against the thinking that God forgives us because of the good that we have done. The second is we must guard against thinking that God would never forgive me because of the evil that I have done. I am thankful this morning that I have the joy and privilege of being able to say to you this morning, I don't know what sin you have may struggled with and yielded to in your life. I don't know what experience you have gone through. I don't need to know. And I can tell you assuredly, 100%, that no matter what it is, that maybe you have been unable to forgive yourself for. It is not something that God cannot forgive. It is not something beyond His pale, beyond His scope. Some time ago, I received an anonymous phone call. The person started off by saying, Pastor Reed, I don't, you don't know me, but I know you. And this woman went into a rather lengthy confession, if you will, of the misery of her life over an abortion that she had. And she said to me, Pastor Reed, can God ever forgive me for that? Can that ever be taken away? Can I be right with God today? Could I ever be used? It was my joy to turn to Psalm 51 and say yes. Whatever 
whatever, whatever we have done. It's not beyond the scope, the pale of God's forgiveness. I say that with joy. That doesn't bring licentiousness. That doesn't breed ill will or disobedience. This is a psalm of David's experience. And he wants Israel to know the forgiveness that he has come to know and enjoy. Even out of such awful sins that he had committed. So, question. What is forgiveness? What are we looking for? And more particularly, what was David looking for when he asked God to forgive him? What did David want from God? What was that forgiveness to look like? What was that experience to be manifested? In this psalm, there are three pictures that are used to describe forgiveness. Each picture illustrates a different aspect of forgiveness. Three pictures of forgiveness. The first picture is one of erasing a debt from a ledger book. Look with me at verse 1. The end of verse 1, it says, Blot out my transgressions. That's the first picture of forgiveness. David wanted his sins to be blotted out. Transgressions are the violation of God's commandments. David had violated two commandments, if not more, in reference to this psalm. He had coveted his neighbor's wife, and he had committed murder. He had killed. Now, David views himself as a debtor to the law of God. In not keeping the law of God, he had incurred a debt. There was a penalty. There was a fee to be paid. There was a consequence that should have come to David as a result of his adultery and murder. David should have died. David should have been put to death. David should have been stoned. And he asked God for God to blot out his transgression. The picture is given to us in Numbers chapter 5, verse 23. And it says, The priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall blot them out with a bitter water. The figure is of an accountant's ledger, where the accountant writes in a expense. Alone, there is a debt to be paid. And then the accountant comes along with some white out and whites out that debt or crosses through it or says paid in full so that that debt of the loan is fully met. That's one picture of Forgiveness. We are indebted to God. We have not done what is right. We have 
come up short, and there is to be a consequence. But by the grace of God, the debt is paid in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second picture of forgiveness is that of washing filthy garments and speaks of the removal of moral corruption. Verse 2, it says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. The word iniquity is filth. It's moral corruption. It's dirt. And you may remember, uh, you know, if you are Shakespeare fans, Macbeth uh, got blood on his hands and washed and washed and washed. Couldn't get rid of it. Couldn't, couldn't, it was imaginary. That guilt was ever before them. Well, this speaks of that guilt in our conscience. How we just feel undefiled. We feel dirty. We feel that we have done wrong. There's that sense of guilt that hangs over us. That nagging pain of unacceptance. And David wants that taken away. And so he says, wash that dirt from me. It's the word to use of beating filthy garments. Remember, Isaiah says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Well, if you think that the good we do in God's sight is like a filthy rag, think of the sin that we do in the sight of God and how dirty that rag is. How just loaded with stain that rag is. And David says, wash me from that. Cleanse my heart. Cleanse my conscience. Make me new. The third picture of forgiveness is that of a leper's cleansing. And speaks of the removal of all stigma and separation due to sin. It's found in the second half of verse 2. And cleanse me from my sin. Sin is missing the mark, falling short of God's righteous standard. Here, sin is pictured as leprosy. There are 15 different Hebrew words that are translated into English as the word cleanse. The word that is used here is always used in connection with a leper who is pronounced to be healed. He is clean. In Leviticus 13.34 Then on the seventh day the priest shall look at the scale if the scale is not spread in the skin and he appears to be no deeper than the skin the priest shall pronounce him clean. He is healed of his leprosy. He is no longer a leper. There were a lot of miseries associated in the Old Testament with being a leper. It was a hideous disease. It would just eat at you literally and, and your flesh would fall off. It was, a, it was a terrible disease and it was quite contagious. And as a result, the person who was a leper could not have any dealings at all with society. In Leviticus 13, 46, it says, He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
The leper, if he was to come in contact with someone, if, 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 if he'd see a person afar off, it was his responsibility to announce, to shout to a person his disease. If someone was coming close, he was to pronounce and to yell, Unclean! Unclean! Stay back! Have nothing to do with me! Depart from me! I'm a leper! And they would live in their own little leper colonies. Only could associate with other lepers. The great joy of having one's leprosy healed, of pronounced clean, is that once again you could become a part of society. Once again you could move home. You could be with family. You could be friends. You could be back in your tent. And you could go back and worship God again. Because the leper was also banned from temple worship. David wanted his stigma of sin removed. He wanted that alienation. Sin alienates us from others. Sin makes us realize that there are issues. One of the things that people struggle with when they have committed sin is they don't want to be around others. They don't want to be around Christians. They think that everybody's going to judge them. They think that everybody's looking at them. They think that everybody else is talking about them. And they distance themselves from people. And oftentimes they distance themselves from God. They don't come to church. They don't read the Bible. They are not praying. They are living in a place of alienation from God's people and from God Himself. David is praying that he would be cleansed, healed, brought back into fellowship with his fellow believers and back into fellowship with God. There is a picture of forgiveness. So, in seeking forgiveness, David was seeking three things. First, to be absolved from the penalty due to sin. Secondly, to be free from the filth and moral corruption that results from his sin. And third, to be freed from the alienation, the separation from God and from others. I tell you that that is available to us today. Complete forgiveness from its penalty, from its sense of moral corruption, the filth, the guilt, the anxiety, the sleeplessness, the oppression that comes in knowing that I am a sinner can be removed. And any alienation that we may feel from God's people and from God Himself, any barriers that may exist can be completely torn down. That's what is offered to us in forgiveness. So then, what must I do to obtain this forgiveness? Answer, I must confess my sins. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. So, what does confession look like? 
there are seven phrases that David employs to confess his sin. Seven aspects, if you will. Seven elements. Seven parts to confession. And let's look at them together rather briefly, but yet as thoroughly as we can in the time that we have. Confession includes seven elements. First, confession includes the conviction of sin. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions, King James. And yes, I know my transgressions. Literally, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Here is a constant awareness of his sin and a sense of guilt. In Psalm 32, David said, day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. This woman that called me on the phone couldn't get it out of her mind. This abortion that she had had years, years earlier, that had just been sticking with her. I'm sure she didn't think about it every waking moment. But obviously, she thought about it repeatedly. Obviously, it grew in its intensity. And got to the place where she couldn't even function any longer as she thought about it. Conviction. Feeling guilty. Knowing deep down inside what we have done is is wrong. That's part of confession. That conviction. And to admit before God, I know, I know what I've done. I'm aware of what I've done. I've been trying to hide it, but I can't hide it any longer. Secondly, confession includes complete acceptance for the responsibility of sin. Verse 4, he says, I have sinned. I have sinned. In verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. There is no rationalization here. David does not blame his circumstances. David does not blame his social conditions. Nor does David attempt to shift blame or to minimize his wrongdoing. He takes full responsibility For his sinful act. He says, it's my sin. That's what confession is. It's acknowledging that the wrongdoing that we have done, we are responsible for. Not shifting it. Remember when God first approaches Eve in the garden? What does Eve say? The serpent tempted me. So God goes to David. What is, excuse me, to Adam. So what does Adam say? It's the woman that you have given me. She gave me to eat. It's so easy to shift blame. Somebody else's fault. It's their fault I'm angry. It's their fault I did this. It was their bad advice I followed. It's their fault. It's the way I was raised. It's the friends that I have. It's the circumstances I am in. No. It's an acknowledgement that this is my wrongdoing. This is my Issue. This is my problem. David takes responsibility for his sin. 
Third, confession includes the acknowledgement of the dreadfulness of sin. Verse 4, against thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Evil in thy sight. Sin is evil. God views the action of David as evil, abhorrent. And so does David. David doesn't minimize sin by calling it a mistake, a bad choice, a problem, a slip up, or one of those things that just happened. God, I'm sorry I blew it. I'm sorry I messed up. No, he said, I'm sorry I have done this evil in thy sight. Which brings us to the next point that I've been skipping over, but it's really the it's really the capstone to this. Fourthly, confession includes the acknowledgement of the essence of sin. Sin is against God. Look at verse four. Against thee, and thee only have I sinned. As I read this psalm, there are elements that strike me, that stand out, that kind of leap off its page. As I read it. And this is one of those statements. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. That's a rather striking statement. In view of David's sinfulness. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Let me ask you. Is he the most hard-hearted, imperceptive person there is? Did David not understand that his sin had tremendous consequences for other people? He certainly did. And it certainly did. When it says that against thee and thee only have I sinned, it does not minimize the fact that David destroyed Bathsheba's life. That he violated her. That he treated her unjustly. And brought a lot of misery and heartache and tears into her life. And certainly, murder had a huge impact on Uriah. He's dead. This is not a failure to acknowledge that sin doesn't have an impact on other people. It does. It does. But what it acknowledges is that the primary impact is upon God. In this statement, we have a great lesson concerning the true nature of sin. Others may have been wronged, mistreated, taken advantage of, used, terribly affected, Because of our sin, however, in the strictest sense of the word, God is uniquely affected by our sin. It is His law that is disobeyed. It is His holy character which has been called into question. It is God to whom we are accountable. And to commit adultery is a violation of God's law. To murder is to break His commandment. This is important. For when we fail to see sin as a violation of God's law, we destroy our concept of what sin is. Here is the fallacy. 
Here is the fallacy of saying, as long as I don't hurt anybody else, what's wrong with it? As long as it's two consenting adults, and these two consenting adults decide to engage in a certain activity, well then, what's the problem? It's a victimless crime, we will say. There's no fallout that affects anybody negatively. Well, first of all, I don't believe that's true, but even if it were true, sin is against God. Sin is against His person. Sin is a recognition that I have failed Him. And that's one of the biggest problems that people have in reconciling with God and others. So many times people will want to come and they'll want to work on their marriages because they realize it's created problems between themselves and they want those problems removed. And for some, God is totally out of the equation. There's no understanding of, of, of what I'm doing in its relationship to God and his testimony. Nathan said to David, after he said to David, thou art the man. Because originally David was, was trying to hide his sin. He was trying to cover it up. And so Nathan, now you can imagine a prophet going in to confront the king about his sin. David was a little bit unnerved by that. And God said to him, tell him a story. And so Nathan told David a story about a man who had only one sheep. And this rich man that had loads of sheep took this man's one pathetic little sheep away from him and uh, stole it. And Nathan says, what should happen to that man? David says, that man ought to be killed. How could he do such a thing? And Nathan turns around and says to David, you're the man. This is what you did. But then the next words out of Nathan's mouth was this. David, you have given great occasion in Israel for God to be blasphemed. David, your sin is a reflection upon who God is. David, everybody in the kingdom knows that you profess to love and serve God. David, everyone in the kingdom knows that you've been going around telling people from a youth that the reason that you were able to kill Goliath was because God was on your side. You've been talking about building a temple. And now you've done this. As Christians, we need to realize our testimonies are important. We name the name of Christ. People know we go to this church. People know that we profess to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest turnoffs to a right relationship with God is that old, well, if they're a Christian, I don't want to be one. The church is filled with hypocrites, the world says. And it's a reason for blasphemy. 
David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. There's a recognition when I sin. I don't just hurt others. I hurt God. His character. His reputation. And we confess that. And we seek forgiveness from it. Confession includes an acknowledgement of one's own rightful condemnation. Verse 4. So that thou art justified when thou speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. David, accept God's verdict against David. You have said it is evil. I have sinned against you. You have pronounced judgment, and rightly so. Moving on. Confession includes the acknowledgement of the source of one's sinfulness. Our own sinful nature. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David understood that he had a sinful nature from birth. When he's talking about the sin in which he was conceived, he's not saying that his mother sinned in, in David's being born. He is saying, I was born in sin. I was born a sinner. I was born a sinful nature. That is true. That is true. And that is rejected by our world, our society. Our society says man is basically good. David said, I'm basically sinful. I'm basically sinful. David, in essence, is saying this is just the tip of the iceberg. This isn't out of character. This is a part of my character. This is who I am. The reason I did this is because I'm sinful. It isn't that I'm a good person and just got caught up in a moment. David said, I've got a big problem here. I've got an issue. So, lastly, confession includes an acknowledgement of the extent of one's sinfulness. It reaches to the very heart. It was more than the mere act that he had committed. It was the problem of the heart out of which the act was motivated. Verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. You want truth deep down inside of me. You want my motivations, my actions to be just. You're concerned about why I do what I do. Look at verse 10, which is going to be next week, but it's a part of repentance. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. David says, Make something there that wasn't there before. David says, create in me a clean heart. That word create means make something new. David isn't asking to be restored to a place of having a clean heart. David says, I never had one. The problem with my sin is I was defective all along. And David realized that without the grace of God, he would do the same thing again. He would fall again. He'd commit the same sin again. And so he's pleading with God, create in me a clean heart. Deliver me inwardly from the desire. Take the desire away. Let me not harbor it. Quickly. How is forgiveness appropriated? Forgiveness is appropriated by the application of the sin offering. Verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. The uh, 
King James, purge me with hyssop. The word means to purge or purify by the means of a sin offering. Hyssop is a plant that grows virtually anywhere and everywhere in the areas of Palestine. But hyssop was a plant that was used in ceremonial washings and cleansings to apply the blood of the sacrifice to that which is to be cleansed or atoned for. It was a plant that would be dipped in the blood of the sacrifice in order to apply it to that which was to be cleansed. It first appears in Exodus, in the Passover. Exodus 12:22. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the doorposts that none of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning. They were to offer a Passover lamb. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and with a piece of plant, a hyssop, dip it in that plant and then smear it on the, the doorposts and on the top doorway, the lintel. Apply this blood that would take away the sinfulness of those that were dwelling inside so that when the Passover angel would come, they would not be destroyed. Later, in Leviticus, there the leper that was to be cleansed. There were to be two birds. One was to be killed and its blood was to be shed. And another bird was to be let go. But the bird that was to be let go was to be sprinkled in the blood of the bird that was killed and applied to the leper as a symbol of his cleansing, of his forgiveness. Note the imagery. A dead bird. A live bird. It is a picture of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is forgiveness mine? It's by the application of the shed blood of Jesus Christ to ourselves. Ultimately, this imagery speaks of Christ. Hebrews 9. I need to go quickly. For when every commandment has been spoken of by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God made it, commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. Hebrews 9.23 and, and according to the law, one must almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than thee. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the heavens, heavens God for us. It is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that is applied to us so that we can be forgiven. This morning... We are celebrating communion. In the communion, we have a picture. We are symbolically drinking the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, symbolically, it's not really blood. It's grape juice. 
It's a picture. It's a symbol. But it is not only poured over us to cleanse us outwardly. It is imbibed. We drink it to cleanse us inwardly. To reach to our very hearts. To reach to our very souls. God doesn't just want us outwardly to appear clean. He wants us to be clean. And so this morning as we partake of communion, we rejoice, we celebrate. The communion that we enjoy with God and the communion we enjoy with others. That's why communion is always celebrated in a group. It's a celebration. Our sins are forgiven. And our alienation from God is gone. And our, and our alienation from our brothers and sisters in Christ is gone. And we are loved and welcomed by each other. And we are loved and welcomed by God Himself. No matter what we have done. No matter when we have done it. Because Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This morning, as you go to communion, I invite you Search your hearts. Ask yourselves, is there something that I need to be forgiven of this morning? A debt to be paid? To be blotted out? An alienation? A guilt? A sense of uncleanness? Seek God's forgiveness. Know that He'll forgive you, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done. Accept that forgiveness that comes through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you partake of communion this morning, thank God. Rejoice. I'm forgiven. And God loves me and accepts me. Drink it to your health and to your well-being. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to refrain. It would be a mockery of what we're doing this morning. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, search your heart. Confess your sin. And rejoice in the forgiveness that's yours. We're going to ask the brethren to come forward at this time.